Thank you, Kevin. You uh, reach for your Bibles and stand with me for our scripture reading this morning. We're reading Genesis chapter 3 as Pastor Bruce continues in the series in Genesis. Today we're looking at Paradise Lost, the fall into sin. We'll be reading Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And uh, if you need a pew Bible, there's one in front of you. And we are now on to page 2 in, uh, in the Bible. So as, as you follow along as I read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, as we look at the temptation and the fall of man today. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Father, we come to you this morning. And we ask that you would open our eyes and hearts to learn um, just about our nature, our sin nature, and, uh, and just to, to learn what uh, you would have for us this morning. Be with the Pastor Bruce as he continues in his series in Genesis. Thank you for his time and his preparation. May you uh, just bless this, uh, this morning and for us to learn uh, what your word has for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the past several weeks, as we have launched in and explored this idea, this reality of God's creation, God creating the world, and now we find Adam and Eve in uh, the creation of the Garden of Eden, there is one theme, one truth, one reality that we have seen over and over and over again, and that is God is good. In fact, there's a, a saying that uh, Christians say quite a bit, and that is God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And here's the question, do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that, that God is good? And not just some of the time when your life is, quote, going good. And of course, that good is according to our definition of good. So do we really, really, truly believe that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good? Now the reason I ask that question is because here's the deal. Everything hinders on that question that we're going to see today. Everything turns on that question. And what I mean by that is this. What you believe about the goodness of God in great measure, in great way, determines if you will live under the rule of God. For example, if you believe God is good, and if you believe God acts for your good, for his ultimate glory, then you will live under the rule of God. But if you don't, if you doubt God's goodness, and if you doubt that God acts for your good, on your good, and for his glory, then you will seek your own good apart, away from, out from under the very rule of God in your life. And so what we see next here in Genesis 3 turns 
on what Adam and Eve actually believe about the very goodness of God. Of course, we know, because Zach just read it for us, that Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness here in the Garden of Eden, and this doubt led to their disobedience of God. It's what theologians call the, the fall of mankind into sin, and in many ways, this fall explains it all that we see now today. If you've ever wondered to yourself, man, what is wrong with our world? What has gone wrong with the world that we now live in? Well, the fall explains it all. And for this reason, Genesis chapter 3 here that we're going to look at for the next today and the next two Sundays, this chapter alone is one of the most crucial, important chapters in all of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything God created was what? Good. Why? Because God is good. And that word good is a summary term for God's perfectness and his holiness and his whole character of who he is. God is good. And that's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. But by Genesis chapter 4, everything has now gone wrong. So how did we get from this to this? What went wrong? Well, Genesis 3 tells us what. Genesis 3 answers that, tells us that the answer is sin. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and nothing has been right ever since. Which brings us to this overarching big idea. The main idea that I want us to see this morning, that I want you to leave here today, that we're going to see right here in the Garden of Eden, is this principle, this truth, however you want to word it, it's this. Life with God is good. Life with God is good. As long as... We live under the rule of God. So, life with God is what? It's good. As long as we will put ourselves under the rule of God. As long as we will live within his boundaries. As long as we will submit to God's authority and God's rule. Life with God is good. Not according to our definition of good, but God's good. As we come to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are living in perfect paradise in the Garden of Eden. Life with God is truly good for Adam and Eve. God created everything good. God planted a beautiful garden for Adam and Eve to live in. And God even made Adam a beautiful helper comparable to him, as we saw last Sunday, in Eve, to help him actually fulfill his God-given task, his purpose, his role in the Garden of Eden. That is to tend it and keep it. God was generous to Adam and Eve. God was good to Adam and Eve when he then said to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God has generously, generously provided everything Adam and Eve needed, get this, to be happy, healthy, and holy in life. They are without excuse. Adam and Eve were truly free to enjoy the very blessings of life with God within the boundaries set by God. In other words, life with God was what? Good. As long as they lived under the very rule of God. In fact, life with God was so good 
for Adam and Eve that the pinnacle of their joy in life, the pinnacle of their innocence in the garden is pictured in the very last verse of chapter 2 when it says, and they were both naked and the man and his wife were not ashamed. In other words, Adam and Eve were naked before God Almighty as their creator and with each other. There was nothing to hide in their relationships, for there was no shame and no sin to speak of in their lives. But all that is about to change here in Genesis 3, and the contrast that we see is radical. In fact, it's so radical when the pit of their guilt of sin is described here in verse 7 of chapter 3. And it's interesting, both verses, so you have bookends here, of right before the sin, right after the sin, are bookend about nakedness. Before sin, they are not, they're naked and not ashamed. But after sin, they are naked and ashamed. And there's a reason for that. Notice what it says in verse 7 or what happens here. It's amazing. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And the in-between, the before and the after, is all sin. The rest of Genesis 3 tells us paradise is lost all because of that. Sin. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and as a result, they forfeited the blessings of life with God in the garden. The life lesson here that I pray that you will leave here with this morning is this. Life with God is what? Good. As long as we live under the rule of God, and when we rebel against God and his rule, we forfeit the very blessings of life with God. And so let's look at what happened here in the garden and what has happened countless times down through the ages since the Garden of Eden here with Adam and Eve. Number one, here's the thing. Beware. In fact, that's an overarching theme we're going to see. Two points, beware on both of them. The first point to be aware of is the strategy of Satan is deceptive. The strategy of Satan is deceptive. Make no mistake about it, Satan is real. And he is dangerous, and his strategy is deceptive. And I want you to see this. I want us to be aware of Satan and his strategies. For, so first of all, notice here that when Satan approaches, he appears in disguise, in his person and in his purpose. When he approaches to tempt you to rebel against God, he appears in disguise. We are introduced to a very new character here in verse 1 of chapter 3. Notice what it says. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So immediately notice something here. A couple of observations about this serpent. The serpent is a creature that God created. So do not think that we are pitting evil and good as if they're co-equals here. This is not... Uh, Satan and God in co-powers here, and they're dueling this out. This is not dualism here on the earth, and, and they're equal in power and whatnot. No, God is sovereign. God is supreme. God dominates. Satan is a creature created by God. Satan is dependent being, a created being. Now, about the serpent specifically, there are some things that we just don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us, and then there are some things we do know because it's revealed to us here in the Word of God. One of those things we do know is the serpent was cunning or crafty. 
than any other beast of the field. And the Hebrew word for serpent carries the idea that bright and shiny, in fact. So the serpent's appearance was not a boring. It wasn't grossed out. It was beautiful, his appearance was. In fact, this word cunning or craftiness actually implies that the serpent was shrewd or he was skilled, which does not always imply that the serpent itself was evil. But when craftiness or cunningness is misused, it then becomes deceit or beguile. And that's what Satan does through the serpent. But what's most surprising here is that the serpent actually talks. So what's going on with that? What's going on is Satan is using this serpent in his disguise to deceive Eve. This serpent was under the control of Satan. This serpent is merely a mouthpiece for Satan. The serpent is even identified as Satan later on in the last book of the scriptures in Revelation 12, 9, when it says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So there we have his purpose. He comes in disguise in his person, as a serpent here, but he also comes in disguise in his purpose, and that is to deceive. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Here's the takeaway from this. Satan is a deceiver who seeks to lure you or entice you to rebel against God and his rule so that you will forfeit the very blessings of life with God. That is Satan's purpose for your life. He has nothing good for your life. God has everything good for your life. So who are you going to choose? Who are you going to believe? Eve wasn't looking for the serpent that day in the garden. But Satan was definitely looking for her. And when Eve spots the serpent, she doesn't recoil in fear. Why should she? The serpent is beautiful in appearance. And when the serpent speaks, his voice is captivating. Which brings us to the second part of the strategy here. When Satan approaches and when he opens his mouth to speak, he distorts God's word. Satan distorts God's word so we will doubt God's goodness. Amazingly, Satan never says to Eve, I'm here to bring you down, sister. You're going down, and I'm here to see to it. He never says that. He never says, go ahead, Eve, eat the fruit and rebel against God and die. Never says that. And yet, he is entirely successful with Eve. How? Satan distorts God's word so we will doubt God's goodness. Remember, God's word, God's spoken word, nonetheless, was responsible for everything good Eve enjoyed in the garden. But Satan's going to distort the word of God so that we will begin to doubt the goodness of God. And Satan's first move here is brilliant. It is deceptive. In essence, he challenges Eve to a game of Bible trivia. Except this is no game. This is a matter of life and death. What happens next is basically a dialogue about the very word of God in which the serpent speaks 
Eve responds to the serpent, and then the serpent speaks again. The whole conversation could have taken less than a minute, and yet the impact of what we see in this conversation here in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden is still ringing through today. We are hearing the echoes of it even today. The serpent opens the dialogue with a sneer, with mockery, if you will, when he says to Eve in verse 1, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now that is not an innocent conversation starter. The serpent reduces God's command, what God said, to a question. Again, Satan is so very subtle. He does not directly deny God's word, but as one commentator says, he smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. And if we swallow that assumption, we are walking down a very dangerous path that leads to destruction. The question here by the serpent itself turns on the word indeed, or in some of your translations, really. In other words, did God indeed say? Did God really say? It's as if the serpent is saying, Eve, hey, come on, let's come over here. Let's kind of rethink what God said. Let's talk about this for a moment. Satan wants to hook Eve into a dialogue that questions the word of God so that she will doubt what? The very goodness of God. And, of course, the serpent's question implies that God is what? That God is restrictive, that God is stingy, that God is a killjoy. Who wants to be associated with that? Remember, though, God had generously said to Adam and Eve they could freely eat of every tree in the garden except one. That doesn't sound like God is being stingy. That sounds like a very, very generous God. But Satan implies God was far more restrictive when he asked in verse 1, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Listen, that is a complete distortion of God's word. That is a perversion of God's generosity. Satan is shifting Eve's focus. He's shifting her focus from God's generosity, from God's goodness, to his one restriction. He's planting seeds of doubt in Eve's mind concerning the goodness of God. As, you know, how could God not let you eat from all of these wonderful trees? What kind of God is that, Eve? And the implication is clear here. God has put Adam and Eve in this beautiful garden, yet all the trees have a do not eat sign hanging on them. It seems so very harsh, so very restrictive. God seems so very mean and stingy. Do you see how Satan is distorting the very word of God so that you and I, so we here, we will doubt the very goodness of God. Instead of rebuking the serpent and calling on Adam even for spiritual help, Eve gives her ear to the serpent. She listens to the serpent. She listens to teaching that did not come from God. She listens to teaching that did not come from Adam. And she listens to teaching that was contrary to the word of God. The bottom line here is Eve 
placed herself in a vulnerable position of engaging in dialogue with the serpent, who is Satan. So rather than running from the serpent, Eve stays to debate the serpent. This is never a good idea. This is never wise. Remember, Satan is what? He is a deceiver who seeks to lure you to rebel against God so that you will forfeit the blessings of life with God so you don't negotiate with the devil. The moment Eve detected the serpent's distortion of God's word, she should have ran. But instead, she stayed to dialogue. Now notice Eve's response. In her response, Eve then twisted God's word herself. In fact, she does this three ways. She diminished God's word. She then added to God's word. And then in the end, she actually softened God's word. Let me show you this. God said that they could freely eat from every tree of the garden back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. But notice what Eve says in response to Satan's distortion of God's word in verse 2. Eve says to the serpent, we may eat the tree, the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now, that's interesting because Eve leaves out something. She leaves out the words freely and every. Two words, by the way, that emphasized what? God's generosity, God's goodness. But she minimized God's generosity when she revised, when she twisted what God really said. Something bad was happening in Eve's heart. And this subtle shift going on in her heart is now further revealed when she actually added to the word of God. She says in verse 3, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. Listen, God never said that. God never, never once said, you shall not touch it. Eve, in other words, what he's doing by that, he does what our kids and teenagers do. They are magnifying the boundary. They are magnifying God's restrictiveness here. Just touch the tree and zap, you're dead. Her comment suggested that God is so harsh so mean, so restrictive that just touching the tree would bring death to her life. And then finally, Eve softened God's word by merely saying, lest you die. By leaving out the word, surely, she downplayed the very judgment of God for disobedience. God's goodness is now fully in doubt in Eve's mind as she is now focused on what was forbidden in the garden as opposed to what was freely given to her in the garden. But isn't this what we all do? We tell our kids, our teenagers, you, have, you can do this, but you can't do that. And what we tell them you can do is so big and so large, but yet they focus on this one little thing. Hey, we do the same thing as adults. We are all Eve here. Satan's strategy is so deceptive. He first distorts God's word so that we will doubt God's goodness. And now that he's got Eve to doubt God's goodness, Satan moves in for the kill. Remember, God has warned Adam and Eve what would happen if they ate the fruit from the forbidden tree in back in Genesis 2.17. God said to them, 
you shall surely die. But at this point, Satan openly denies what God said when he tells Eve in verse 4, you will not surely die. Now that is just point blank amazing there in the sense of he is contradicting God. Satan took the very words of God and now he put the word not in front of it. And in the Hebrew, that is emphasized. The not is what is emphasized before he says this. As if to say, take that, God. Here's what I'm telling Eve. Note, too, that the very first doctrine in the scriptures to be denied is the doctrine of God's judgment. That's rather interesting. Satan attacked this doctrine from the very beginning when God said, you will surely die, and Satan said, you will not surely die. Satan is blatantly denying the penalty for sin. He says, in effect, you won't reap what you sow. But God clearly says, later in the New Testament, through the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. And to imply or suggest otherwise is to undermine the very holiness of God, the justice of God, and the wrath of God. And yet that is what we are seeing a proliferation of in our culture today. Did Adam and Eve die when they ate the fruit? Their bodies began to die physically, although they didn't die physically immediately. They died spiritually immediately in that they were separated from God, as we will see next Sunday. They would also die eternally unless God intervened. As we will see next Sunday, that's exactly what God does. Because God is loving and God is gracious. But God is also holy. And there is no undermining, there is no denying the judgment of God. The love of God and the judgment of God cannot ever be separated. But we live in a culture today where people and churches are doing just that. Take your doctrine and take it back to the roots here in Genesis. Everything that we see in the rest of scriptures flows out of these chapters. This is why Genesis 1 through 11 is so critical to our own biblical worldview and doctrines and what we believe. So why deny this doctrine, though? God's judgment for sin and not something like God's existence. Well, the answer is simple. If you're convinced that you can actually get away with sin, then sooner or later you're going to do what? Teens, what's going to happen? If you think you can get away with sin, that your mom and dad will not find out what is going to happen. You will eventually try to sin. You will sin. That is human nature. That's what we do. And if you think that no one will know what you're doing in sinning, and no one will notice what you're doing in sinning, and no one will call you to an account for your actions of sinning, you will eventually give in. And if there's no consequences for sin, then there is no reason not to indulge in it. Again, Eve should have run buck naked from the serpent, streaking through the garden. And Adam should have stepped forth to uphold God's word as truth. But Eve was buying into Satan's 
attack here. He's, she's buying into what Satan was selling. Satan not only denied the certainty of God's judgment here, but now he actually goes further and he attacks the very motive for God's boundary. In fact, Satan invents a false motive for God when he tells Eve in verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan implies that God is repressive again, and then he takes it further and he implies that, listen, God's not only stingy and repressive, but he's holding back from you. He's holding stuff back from you that will actually make you happy in the Garden of Eden. Unbelievable. What an incredulous attack on the very character of God in light of all the goodness of God, in light of all the blessings of God in the garden. But Eve was believing it. Satan's lie here, it held out the intoxicating opportunity or possibility for moral autonomy. A, Satan is promising her Listen, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As Francis Schaeffer, he made this observation. What Satan has said is a half-truth, but a total lie. Satan is saying, by eating the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. How can that be a bad thing, Eve? You will no longer need God to tell you what's right and wrong. You will now be able to define that for yourself. You'll know good and evil. What Satan is promising here is autonomy apart from God. What we sometimes call here in America, freedom. How intoxicating this is. Eve would now make the rules. Eve would now decide for herself what is right and wrong for her life. But it is a lie Satan is still trying to even sell to us today. No one has the right to tell you how to live your life. That is the mantra of our culture. You should do what's right for you. And if you ever wonder where that comes from, it's rooted here in Genesis chapter 3. Now, that brings us to Satan's last strategy point here. When Satan approaches, because the reason he tells you this, the reason he promises you this, the reason he holds out this allure of moral autonomy apart from God's rule is that when he approaches, his goal is for us to rebel against God and his rule by asserting our autonomy. This is the heart of sin. This is the core of sin. Rebelling against God and his rule by asserting our own autonomy. Eve bought Satan's lie, hook, line, and sinker. Notice Eve's fall into sin into verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. By this point, God's command seemed insubstantial. Eve could see no reason not to eat, so according to the rest of verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, from a human perspective, as we read these verses, it all seems so natural and undramatic. But make no mistake, the impact of Adam and Eve's sin here was cosmic and eternal. Understand, what Adam and Eve did was more 
than just, quote, rule breaking. It was rule making. They were making their own rules. They asserted their own autonomy apart from God. Therefore, their rebellion against God and his rule was a declaration of independence from the one who alone has the right to set the rules, to set the boundaries. But when we rebel against God's rule, thinking that we know what's best for us, we do so to our own pearl. Charles Coulson wrote, Americans have achieved what modernism has presented as life's great shining purpose, individual autonomy, the right to do what one chooses. Yet this has not produced the promised freedom. Instead, it has led to the loss of community and civility. We have discovered that we cannot live with chaos that inevitably results from choice, divorce from morality or God's boundaries. You see, it's because God is good, that he sets these boundaries for our good and for his glory. Is a parent not good because he sets boundaries for the good of his or her child? And is a child not in the greatest danger when he or she rebels against those boundaries that her parents or his parents set for them? Maybe God takes sin seriously because he's serious about you. He loves you, and he knows the devastation that sin brings to our lives. So beware. The strategy of Satan is deceptive. The second warning we see here in Genesis 3 is the tragedy of sin is destructive. Again, beware of this. Now, there are three lessons I want us to see briefly here concerning the destructive nature of sin that flow right out of verses 6 and 7. The first lesson is the danger of self-pity. When you feel deprived by God, and when you doubt the goodness of God, sin won't seem so sinful. Do you realize the serpent only speaks twice here? Two times the serpent opens his mouth. That's amazing. That's all it took to get Adam and Eve to fall into the tragedy of sin. The success of the serpent can be attributed to his cunning ability to question the word of God so that we will do what? Doubt the very goodness of God. Remember the central theme of Genesis 1 and 2. God is what? God is good, and he will provide the good for humanity if they will only trust him and obey him. But God's goodness is now challenged here by the serpent. He cleverly suggests that God is keeping, quote, good from Adam and Eve. And so the serpent's claim directly contradicted the very points, the central theme of Genesis 1 and 2 that we see in creation, namely that God is what? He's good, and he will provide what is good for humanity. And we see that greatest demonstration for that in the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's the lesson. Sin takes hold when you feel deprived by God, that he's holding out on you, that he's stingy, that he's not giving you the good according to your definition of good, of how life ought to operate, and therefore you begin to doubt the very goodness of God. 
Self-pity is a dangerous emotion that leads to many, many wrong decisions here in life. Sin is always enhanced by the doubts about the goodness of God. How can God be good and not give me the person or the thing or the position or this or that that I deem so essential to my happiness? God's keeping me from being all I can be. And so the first lesson here is the danger of self-pity because we are doubting the very goodness of God when we look at our lives and our circumstances surrounding our lives and we think this isn't fair, God isn't fair, why would he allow this to happen to me? The second lesson is the descent of sin. Eve was actively deceived by Satan when she sinned, whereas Adam was passively defiant against God when he sinned. Now, in my opinion, the last sentence in verse 6 is absolutely devastating. Look what it says. She, that is Eve, also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. When Eve gave the fruit to her husband... Do you realize, listen to me, she is acting contrary to her God-given role of a helper comparable to Adam. Instead of helping Adam serve the Lord in the garden of God, she is now contributing to his downfall. She is actually inviting him to participate in that which is contrary to God's rule. So here's a question. What sin have you invited someone to commit with you? Disobedience, by the way, almost always affects someone else. And most tragically, it almost always affects those we love the most. And so Eve's disobedience here, first of all, it affected her husband. It affected her children, as we will see throughout the rest of these chapters. In fact, it even affected her grandchildren and great-grandchildren and every descendant since then. We're all affected by this. And so what happens when we now yield to temptation, we never, never, never Listen to this, teens. We never sin alone. Others are always hurt when we disobey the rule of God. So where, then, the question is, I know you're all dying to ask, where was Adam in all of this? Where was Adam when all this was going down? And verse 6 very clearly says that he was, what? With her. In other words, he's standing right there beside her. This is devastating. Adam was with Eve while this dialogue with the serpent is going on. And so sadly, Adam, he doesn't say a word. He is passively silent when he willfully sinned by eating the fruit himself. If Adam had taken up his God-given role as a spiritual leader, he would have stepped in to protect his wife from the serpent's attack. After all, God had given him authority to do what? in the garden, to rule over all creation, over all the creatures in the garden, including this serpent creature. But instead, Adam 
passively stands by and watches everything take place. He watched the serpent deceive Eve, and then he watched Eve disobey God when she ate the forbidden fruit. Listen, folks, this is upside down from God's created order. What we see here is the flip-flop of God's creation order in marriage. Eve led, and Adam followed. One commentator calls Adam, Adam Tagalong. That's exactly what he was doing here. He's just tagging along. Kent Hughes points out, Eve followed the serpent, Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. Pretty much sums it up. The Apostle Paul draws an important conclusion from all this in 1 Timothy 2.14 when he says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. As the head of his family, Adam is held morally responsible for this very first sin. Yes, Eve sinned first, but Adam is to blame. This is why when you go to the book of Romans, and specifically chapter 5, it says that sin entered the world through who? Adam. He should have exercised his spiritual leadership to protect his wife and to rebuke the serpent when he had the chance, but he didn't, and the rest is history. Men, the implications are huge here for me and for you as well. It's not ironic that this is coming out on Father's Day. When we, as men, when we, we, men alone, when we, we, me, you, when we fail to exercise spiritual leadership, our wives, our children will always pay the price. Dads, learn this lesson. If you don't lead your wife, if you don't lead your children, if you don't lead your family, Satan will. Don't be an Adam tag-along. Stand up and be the spiritual leader in your home. The third lesson is the discovery of shame. Adam and Eve discovered the shame of sin, and they tried to cover it. Oh, that is so us. That is so, so us. Verse 7 closes with these tragic words. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And that nakedness is it's, it's physical, but it's also symbolic of their guilt of sin. And so as a consequence of sin, their innocence evaporated, and shame gripped their hearts. For the first time, Adam and Eve realized they were now naked. Before sin, there is total transparency and unhindered intimacy with both God and each other. But that's gone now. They're guilty of sin. And now they discover for the first time the shame of sin, which we all know what that is. So what do they do? Oh, they do what humanity has done ever since. They tried to cover their shame by making a pitiful covering of fig leaves. But sinners can never adequately cover up their sin. Listen, the fig leaves keep falling off, and we can never replace them fast enough. And yet we keep trying. Rather than driving them back to God, the guilt leads them to in, into a, get this, a self-atoning, self-protecting act of trying to cover their sin. And this is the tendency of mankind ever since when it comes to our relationship with God. And yet the Bible makes it clear that we can never, 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 never sufficiently cover our sins. 
Only Jesus Christ can cover our sins with his what? With his righteousness. That's the hope of the gospel. In fact, this is the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ, which we will get to next Sunday, but we see it all through the rest of Scripture, and we know the rest of Scripture. And so I ask you, are you defeated by temptation? Are you defeated by sin? If so, then know the promise of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Look at this in your notes. Jesus can pardon your sins. Jesus can give you the power to overcome temptation. But because of our sin, listen, we desperately, oh, how we desperately need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need God to clothe us to cover us because we can't cover our own sin. We need God to do that. We need God to do what Isaiah 61.10 calls a garment of salvation in a robe of righteousness. We need God to put that on us through Jesus Christ. And that is why Jesus came. When he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. Satan is a deceiver. But folks, remember, Jesus is our deliverer. The good news is that through faith in Jesus Christ, all our sins can now be forgiven, and we can be reconciled in our relationship with God. Listen, that day in the garden, Adam and Eve rebelled against God in his rule. They doubted the goodness of God, and they declared their autonomy from God, and as a result, they forfeited the blessings of life with God in the garden. And this lie is repeated. It now rules the world. The lie that you can be your own God and you can live by your own rules. That's why the key question as we leave here this morning is this. Who's going to be God today in your life? Who will be God today in your life? Will you be God or will God be God? That is, will you seek to be your own God, or will you submit to God as ruler in your life? Listen, our most basic fundamental problem is that we have usurped God's rule. So no wonder people are unhappy and unfulfilled in life. No wonder life doesn't work. How much better it is to say with the psalmist in Psalm 95, 6, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So, let us leave here this morning. Let us remember what Adam and Eve forgot in that day in the garden. Life with God is what? Good, as long as we live under the rule of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, oh, how we thank you for the truth of your word here in Genesis. Lord, help us, oh, help us to see our own sins and then to rely solely on your grace in Jesus for redemption and reconciliation. And Father, we ask that you would give us the grace to live under your rule for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, I, I appreciate your attentiveness. I appreciate you being here this morning on Father's Day. I, I do. I want to encourage you to come next Sunday as, as we continue here in chapter 3 in Genesis. This chapter is crucial for our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it, it applies to us even today. I hope you will be back.
what we're going to do, we're going to receive the morning offering here. The ushers are going to come. And then we're going to stand, and we are going to proclaim. We are going to worship our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, in song. And then we will be dismissed.